Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. Hello, I'm Michael Bull, your source to all real estate information, right? Well, today we have a special show for you. We're going to explore the important world of real estate contracts. You know, if you buy, sell, or advise those who do, you know how crucial the sales agreement can become. It's a legal document that secures the rights and obligations of the parties. For a buyer who has a property under contract can be so valuable, it's sometimes referred to as equitable title. And for a seller, I think understanding contracts is even more important since sellers rarely have any rights to cancel a contract. While attorneys should be the ones who write contracts, everyone should have a thorough understanding of contracts, especially since you think about this, the buyer, the seller, the brokers are typically the parties who are closer you know, to the property details and the business and market factors that are impacting the parties. On this show, we'll only touch briefly on some of the aspects of commercial real estate contracts. Keep in mind your local real estate attorney should be consulted in any contractual matters. An attorney familiar with your goals, the property, and your local laws and customs. Nothing we discuss on the show today is intended as legal advice for your specific property or situation. Now, we have a great opportunity here. We have uh, our guest today is Tim Ramsey. He's managing partner with Bodker, Ramsey, Andrews, Winograd, and Wildstein. And Tim has been in the real estate business all his life, and he's been practicing commercial real estate for 30 years. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Michael. Good afternoon. We really appreciate uh, you being here, and uh, this is always a, a popular subject on this show because I think sometimes people have a lot of questions, and we have a lot of questions we're going to share today. First of all, to get us started briefly, what should be the goals of a properly written commercial sales contract? Well, Michael, one of the first goals is to make sure that you can get to a timely closing. The, the parties entered into a contract with the intention of doing a transaction. We really want to make sure the contract's written in a way that will help both parties get to a closing. Um, among other things, what that means is you need to try to avoid misunderstandings or disputes between the parties. You need to clearly lay out the terms. Um, oftentimes, a buyer is going to need the contract to be able to take to uh, either equity finance folks or a lending source to be able to get financing contingencies removed. So it needs to be a clearly written, concise document. Yeah, I think that's really important. And and you know, I guess as a third party reviewing it, whether you're a court or or a or an attorney or who you are, you like to be able to look at that contract and really understand what the party's intentions are, right? Absolutely, that is correct. Have to understand what the intentions of the parties and those are the types of matters that you need to get into. And what things should buyers and sellers and, and their advisors consider before entering into a contract? really need to think through what are the key terms involved in the transactions and make sure that they're clearly put forth, uh, identifying the parties, the property, price, uh, the closing dates, other essential terms, and then you th the conditions to closing, and then think through just a variety of what ifs, what happens if uh, there should be a problem with financing, or what happens if closing takes longer than folks think, or uh, what happens if rezoning cannot be accomplished. So we have to think through where the risk allocation should be in those circumstances and what the results should be. Yeah, that's a very good point because that's, if, I guess, if everything was just really easy, hunky-dory going down the road, it could be done on a, on a napkin, right? I think that sometimes <laughs> they have been done on a napkin. But this, you will need some sort of writing, and it is good to think yeah. through the different issues. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I was uh, 
representing an attorney once that uh, I'd helped uh, put together a contract on something he was buying, and we had an issue come up in the deal, and he said to me, oh, man, we sh I should have included that in the contract. And I said to him, no, we did. <laughs> he said, okay, thank you. Good. Uh, but I don't practice law. Uh, but uh, but uh, and speaking of that, how is important is it to get everything in writing when you're doing a real estate transaction in a contract like that? It's absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. First of all, real estate is a special type of property. Mm -hmm. And real estate uh, in general, in, in practically every state, to have a binding contract in a piece of real estate must be in writing and must be signed by the parties to be bound there too. So uh, you can't just do real estate transactions on a handshake. Uh, so it is critical to have a writing. Now, you have to then go through the various uh, issues and the what ifs, and those are the types of things that a qualified attorney can help you work with to get those into the contract so avoid misunderstandings and confusion later on. Right. So you, I guess you can uh, do it verbally and go to closing, uh, but it's just not enforceable, right? The contract could be right to be enforceable, right? Th that's correct. Right. And theoretically, you could do a closing just on a handshake, and you see yeah. the old, you know, a lot of a lot of unsophisticated folks have the the goal in mind of the stick figure showing up to closing, and one's got a bag of money, and the other has a deed in hand. But <laughs> right. in large part, it doesn't work quite like that. Right. Also, if you've got brokers involved or other licensed professionals, yeah. they often have um, ethical requirements that there must be a writing. They've got to keep certain records, record right. keeping. And there's also record keeping involved in today's disclosure from federal and state agencies as yeah. well. Yeah, good point. Well, I'm asking some specific questions about uh, contracts now. Uh, what are the risks to the parties if one of the parties signs the contract in the wrong capacity? One of the biggest risks is that the contract may not be enforceable. Mm -hmm. And depending on whether you're the buyer or the seller, that could be a devastating problem. Mm -hmm. um, you also, the person signing the contract, could expose themselves to liability, mm -hmm. uh, either contractual liability or possibly even fraud. Okay. So if a seller signs a property, say Bull Realty Inc. owns the property, and I'm selling it and I sign the contract as Michael Bull selling it, that contract might not be enforceable for the purchaser, That's what you're correct. saying. And then Michael Bull, having signed that without owning the property, might be subject to fraud from that buyer. That's correct. You also right. get into some questions from an IRS standpoint or some other yeah. issues like that. So IRS, I've been good. I've been good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the risks for a seller if the entity that emits the earnest money check does not match the entity that signs the contract? Well, the, the worst case is that the contract itself may be unenforceable. Um, although what, what many courts would do would be to establish that even though the money has not been paid, there's at least an obligation to pay the money. So it kind of gets into an evaluation of what the remedies are under the contract. Uh, another big risk is there is that the earnest money itself may not be at risk. So if you're a seller and uh, you have no buyer earnest money, you may have no recovery if there's a default uh, or very limited recovery. You also get into some ethics rules if you're a licensed broker or other parties involved. So, Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So if uh, using that same example, so if Michael Bull's buying a uh, property from you and I sign the contract, but then I remit an earnest money check from Bull Realty, Inc., well, there's really no – Michael Bull doesn't have any earnest money at risk, right? Correct. No and earnest I guess, money at risk. And, and I, and I guess Bull Realty, Inc. could call the escrow agent and say, look, you don't even have an agreement to hold my money. That's Give it correct. back. 
That right? is correct. Yeah. So it's a, it's actually a, a good business practice for either an attorney, broker, whoever's holding the earnest money, the escrow mm-hmm. agent, mm-hmm. to carefully examine the contract and the earnest money mm-hmm. and make sure that they match up. And if they don't match up, get some writing and confirmation, either an amendment to the contract, um, a letter of explanation, but something that would indicate that it's bound and to be held under the terms of the agreement. Yeah, I think that's so important because sometimes it uh, – it, it may be an accident that a purchaser does that, but, you know, if it comes down to it and the earnest money is supposed to be forfeited to the seller, you know, the buyer might have the argument, well, you know what, I didn't put down earnest money. Correct. You know, that, was, that was a different entity. So that is important. Well, how do you best handle a situation like this, Tim? A buyer and seller, they want to sign a contract. They want to go into contract to buy and sell this property, but they don't have a full meets and bounds legal description available. It's important in, in real estate transactions, again, to have a writing. There must be a, to, in order to be enforceable, the contract must be in writing. And the courts also have to be able to determine the specific intention of the parties. So they have to be able to have enough of a description in the contract to, to establish without question what the property was that was intended to be conveyed. Now, theoretically, you can do that by attaching a survey. You can do it by attaching a drawing, a tax plat. Um, I've seen them done using tax parcel numbers, but there's really very little reason in today's time that we couldn't get a good legal description because so many uh, real estate records are available online. Um, we can we can pull the tax records, find the latest deed information online very quickly, and in most states, most jurisdictions, be able to pull up deed records, get a copy of the vesting deed where the seller acquired the property, and eliminate that confusion. It gets to be a real tricky, however, when the seller's only selling a portion of what might have been covered either in a tax parcel or in a deed, and there it gets, it does get very tricky there. Yeah, yeah I guess you got to be careful because if you just have the street address and, and, and don't have enough of a legal description, uh, one of the parties might declare that that's unenforceable, right? Uh, that's correct, and that yeah. means the contract could be void, terminated, and from the seller's standpoint, possibly the earnest money is no longer available. Mm-hmm. From the buyer's standpoint, they may have lost the deal. Yeah. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on commercial real estate contracts, including a question I get a lot. Does a contract have to have earnest money? to be enforceable. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about commercial real estate contracts, a very important subject for most anyone involved in commercial real estate at some point in your career. And we happen to have Tim Ramsey, Managing Director with Bodker Ramsey Andrews, Winograd, Wildstein. Got it right. That's a big law firm name. That's great. Here talking about contracts with us. And before the break, I had a, a teaser question. Does a contract have to have earnest money to be enforceable? Not necessarily. Um, a contract can be enforced between the parties without earnest money, but there must be an agreement between the parties to provide consideration. So the stated consideration, which most contracts have, $10, another good and valuable consideration, is typically enough to be enforceable. Right. And, of course, people like to use earnest money because it shows a seller that the purchaser is earnest. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't really have to be earnest money, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, let me ask you this question. If a contract is silent on the issue of delayed earnest money not being remitted, or maybe if, if, the, if the check earnest money check bounces, it's silent on what, what happens there, might the seller still be bound by the contract if the buyer never remits it or the buyer's check bounces? Possibly. The, yeah. the seller may be bound, and it's, so it's important to have provisions in your contract that cover that eventuality if, if the, either the earnest money is not paid within a stated period of time or if it's returned NSFF, uh, non-sufficient funds, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you also need to be looking through uh, the contract. You would, what the seller would do in a case like that is allege a breach of the contract. Mm -hmm. Then you have to look through the contract to come up with the remedies, the default remedies, and notice provisions, and then send notice out. It can be very complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly better practice just to have it covered up front, right? Absol if, absolutely. Did, that, hey, there's a clear remedy and it's fast and you give notice and you're done, right? Correct. I like that. Well, how important is the notice section of a contract? Notice is critical to have covered in your contract. Uh, one of the problems we run into today is that so many folks rely on email almost exclusively for communications. But email is a, is a very inefficient method for proving receipt by another party, a receiving party. Also, emails can get lost in kind of all the clutter that comes through. So uh, we generally provide for a more formal notice provisions in contracts, particularly as to very, very important or critical types of communications. Uh, facsimile is still around for a reason, and it's because fax is almost instantaneous, provides notice of acceptance, and you can get, a re you can get an acknowledgement and receipt when it goes. And, uh, so that's, that's also there. We can provide for uh, notice by email. We generally provide for notice to also be given in written form overnight uh, by Federal Express, one of the express delivery services. Or if you want to go back to the snail mail, we can do that too. Mm -hmm. Three days, return receipt requested, those sorts of things. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, we've certainly seen situations where the notice provision requires, say, a copy be delivered to the seller's attorney and the purchaser gives notice everything else correct but doesn't copy the attorney and i guess the the seller could maybe suggest that well you didn't give proper notice you were supposed to the reason i had that in there is because i go out of town a lot and you're supposed to copy my attorney and you didn't so it's important to really read them make sure you're giving notice it is important to do that yeah. it's also important to make sure that you have a notice provision that works with the mechanics mm -hmm. uh, or the or the practicalities of the transaction if you have mm -hmm. a seller that travels a lot mm -hmm. The buyer may not want to be bound by getting notice to the seller. Yeah. Uh, you may want to, to allow notice to be effective just by getting it to uh, the attorney. And How about another smoke reason. signals? Is that, that works? Smoke, smoke signals? signals could, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't want to rely on that one. That it may even be worse than snail mail. Carrier pigeon, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you about this. This question comes up sometimes with buyers. How important is the type of deed contract the deed that's called for in a contract. So sometimes we'll have see contracts that call for a, a general deed. The seller's going to sign a general warranty deed, and sometimes it's a limited warranty deed. Uh, how is that important? Well, it depends on on who I'm representing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The presumption in most jurisdictions is that if a contract is silent, then it's going to be a general warranty deed. Okay. Most commercial sellers don't like to give general warranty deeds because it is a full warranty. It's not only matters that were within the control of the that owner, that seller, but it's also prior title back in time. Right. So they're representing that all prior title matters are covered. Limited warranty deeds, 
only applies to the duration, the, the, the period of time or the duration where the seller actually owned the property. Yeah. So as a seller, we, we would normally want to specify that it would be limited warranty deed. It's fairly common yeah. in commercial transactions. From the buyer's standpoint, maybe willing to take a limited warranty deed, not maybe not quite so critical to to stipulate that because the presumption again is normally general warranty deed. Right, but a limited warranty deed certainly sounds reasonable that the seller is going to warrant the title while he had it, and then it seems like today with uh, the great title companies we have out there and the great title search capability we have, is it maybe a little less important than it was back in the day? Or? Uh, it's not only less important, I think it's actually preferable. Yeah. Um, in today's uh, environment, title companies are critical. We rely on them an, an enormous amount. The old mm -hmm. days, you used to have uh, attorneys would get title certificates and mm -hmm. title abstracts, and you were relying solely on the, the credit worthiness or the reputation of that attorney. Mm -hmm. Now, by being able to go to a regulated insurance company with reserves, and uh, they will insure limited warranty deeds. It's fairly yeah. typical in the right. industry. Okay. Well, here's a question that we see come up a good bit, and um, is what is the best practice for a buyer if the legal description drawn on the purchaser's new survey is different than the legal description in the contract or warranty deed? Should the buyer ask the seller to sign a quit claim deed that's based on that new survey? Uh, absolutely, and it's, it's really important when you're, when you're entering into the contract to cover that sort of uh, eventuality. Most contracts that we prepare nowadays provide that the seller will convey title based on the record title that they own. Mm -hmm. That would be the title that's based on the deed that came into the seller with an obligation of the seller to provide a quick claim deed if the buyer obtains a new survey where there's a difference. And that's a fairly typical uh, commitment and obligation. It gets to be real critical if there's been, if we know or the seller knows that there have been changes in the legal description. For example, parcels have been sold off or they know that they've had boundary line issues and boundary lines may have been modified over a period of time or there have been condemnations, other things like that that could affect legal descriptions. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, we've seen it where some buyers you know, haven't done that, the, even buyers with, with counsel and uh, in, even though their survey was different than the meets and bounds description they're getting from the seller, uh, and I think they should always do a quick claim deed, and most sellers are okay with that unless they're doing something dirty, right? <laughs> well, not necessarily dirty. Some are just very risk-averse. Yeah. But uh, as a general rule in commercial transactions today, most sellers would cooperate and be willing to give a quick claim deed. So if I quick claim deed you the Brooklyn Bridge, I could get in trouble for that? Not necessarily, <laughs> but if you're in New York, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say there, there's a conflict in various parts of a contract, okay? So, because sometimes you'll have pre-typed pre pre-typed written, you know, it's, we'll say it's form contract, right? And then you have maybe somebody's typed something they're used to, and then they handwrite over it, all right? So, if the pre-printed contract conflicts with the handwritten, what controls? What happens? That falls under the one of the general rules that courts follow called rules of construction. Um, Courts in general want to enforce contracts. They don't like for contracts to be unenforceable. They, they anticipate that the parties had a reason for entering into a contract, and so they'll try to enforce those contracts. Uh, so they'll generally allow the handwritten notes to control first, because that's most likely what the parties intended. The typed form, type part to be second. Preprinted, nobody reads that stuff anyway. <laughs> so, you know, they're less likely to, to right. give weight to that. Stay tuned. We'll have more. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. 
The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull, your host. Thanks for being with us. Today we're talking about commercial real estate contracts. We have Tim Ramsey here. He's a 30-year experienced commercial real estate lawyer. And Tim, there's a question I have for you that we see a, a good bit in, in the pr- uh, real world practice that we're selling investment properties. Uh, there's multiple tenants. And of course, there's a, a requirement for the seller to provide estoppel letters that the tenants are signing that's confirming that the, the lease is, is what it is and everything's current and that sort of thing. But typically, we'll see language that the buyer puts in a contract that says that the estoppel has to be provided by the seller, not a contingency. It's a requirement. And it says the form has to be one that the buyer or the buyer's uh, lender uh, supplies. So the seller signed a contract, hasn't even seen the form yet. Uh, he doesn't know maybe if his, if his leases require tenants to sign estoppels, and he doesn't know if the the leases he has has a specific estoppel if the tenant is going to sign one that they sign, which might not match the one the buyer wants. So, so the question comes: Should should really these requirements for a seller to to provide estoppel signed by tenants be a contingency, and not a requirement of the seller? Well, Michael, really should be from the seller's perspective. It should be both. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would not be unusual for the seller to have an obligation to use reasonable efforts to obtain um, estoppel arrangements or estoppel agreements from any individual tenant of a form provided by the by the buyer. But as you say, the, the seller may not have the ability to control that. And all they can do is go to the various tenants unless they've got some language in their lease that obligates the tenant to provide that. Oftentimes those terms are negotiated and the tenants under those leases may have very limited reps and warranties or disclosures that they're obligated to give. And so the seller needs to be very careful in that regard. Yeah, uh, so, so first of all, to the extent there is an obligation, the seller needs to be careful to limit the scope of that obligation, and that would be to use reasonable efforts. Second, it ought to be a contingency that if they can't provide those, it's impossible to get those from the tenants, then either the seller's got the ability to avoid a default or from the buyer's perspective, they might want to be able to terminate the contract as well if they can't get key estoppels. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other is it's important from a practical standpoint to get those estoppels entered into in the deal early on, get get them in front of both the seller and the buyer, uh, have them approved by seller's counsel, uh, look carefully at the leases to see if there is the obligation to provide that sort of tenant. Oftentimes those estoppels are heavily negotiated. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes the tenant's obligations to provide them are heavily negotiated. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we see it sometimes as a pretty big issue. I mean, you're buying a commercial uh, piece of real estate, uh, usually you're paying a lot for that income stream. Correct. And uh, you really want to confirm that it's there. Um, and then you also, as a seller, uh, you might have a situation where the uh, uh, the tenant doesn't have a requirement in the lease to sign estoppels, and the, t- the, the tenant could hold you up, right? He could say, look, I'll, I'll sign one, but it, I'm busy. Uh, I'll need ten grand or a hundred grand to do it, right? Well, it, it, again, it depends on the terms of the lease document itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many, most leases that I, I would say that have had an attorney work on them will have some provision for the tenant to, re, 
to provide an estoppel. Mm -hmm. uh, there may actually be language in there that authorizes the landlord to sign as the tenant's agent an estoppel if the tenant if the landlord needs one uh, and the tenant fails to cooperate you can also specify in the leases whether or not there's going to be an expense reimbursement or something to that effect right right good points well another question for you how important are seller reps and warranties and their survival of the contract to both a, 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 let's look at the buyer side and, and a seller side to these reps and warranties uh, Reps and warranties and survival in general are great for the buyer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the buyer is extending out that contractual obligation for the seller uh, past closing, and they want those reps and warranties to survive. Uh, forever. Forever, if possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Uh, for the seller, you know, they prefer not to have any. And, uh, you know, the, the default rule is this concept of merger, that whatever the contract may have said that, Unless it's entered into a document at closing, then all prior reps and warranties and whatnot are, are merged into the closing documents and go away. So it's important if you do have critical reps and warranties, be it landlord-tenant issues or things like that, or obligations that may survive closing, that you have specific survival provisions in the closing documents that, that reference the particular items that are to be performed or that will survive post-closing. Right, because as a seller, you'd like those reps and warranties maybe uh, to end right at the contract, right, to merge, right? And if the contract is silent on it, you're saying it, it does merge. So you bought the property, there's no more reps and warranties. Correct. Good luck to you. And from a seller standpoint, even if there are uh, reps and warranties that may survive, another negotiated item is how long they will survive. Right. Often we try to put a sunset on them, six yeah. months, a year. Another thing that we've had come up with this is that the, the seller is a single asset entity. So it's an LLC that its only asset is that piece of real estate. So the buyer says, well, this reps and warranties for two years is great, but your LLC doesn't have any money. So we want to put some, you have put some money in escrow in case we have to come back on you. Well, we have a lot more real estate contracts for you. Stay with us. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Realnex, providing a comprehensive suite of powerful commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low cost. Visit Realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about commercial real estate contracts. We have Tim Ramsey with us, 30-year experienced real estate lawyer. And um, Tim, uh, this is often a question we get from, from buyers and, and, uh, and advisors, is what disclosure obligations does a seller have in a commercial real estate transaction? What do they really have to disclose to a buyer? The actual legal obligations of a seller to make disclosure are, are fairly limited, if, if at all, and that varies by jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. um, some jurisdictions do require, if there's a broker involved, that the broker have the seller execute certain property disclosure requirements and whatnot. But as a general rule, that's not an obligation on the seller. That's an obligation that's imposed by the licensing folks. Um, you do get into situations, though, where if a seller has knowledge of a situation, it's always a practical question, but they may be better off making the disclosure and then having the buyer accept the issue or accept the property with the understanding that that may help reduce potential back-end liability. The, the bad situation you get into is where the seller may have knowledge of a situation 
and the the buyer alleges that the seller actively hid it or either actively or constructively hid the information and that can create some real potential liability for the seller that, that could even potentially create fraud issues i see so if the seller's aware of certain circumstances it's almost better that they make this buyer aware have the buyer take with knowledge and then waive rights for that now that makes sense to me and that that's what we do with our seller clients is we want to know all the hair every deal has some hair on it it seems and you know we want to know everything because you know any property can be sold and anything can be pre-managed and i think you sleep better at night and have a better reputation as a, as a broker certainly as a seller as well that hey you disclose these things and you know about it and uh and because there's plenty of buyers typically uh, right. for properties so um well, here's another question that we get a lot. Uh, if a seller handwrites on a contract that a property is sold as is, where is, with no warranties, expressed or implied, la da da, he handwrites it, the parties initial it, um, could that seller argue that the preprinted form that had inspection contingency rights for the buyer is no longer uh, valid? That no, no, we, we we changed that, Mr. Buyer. We said this is as is, where is. You were buying it. I based the price on that. Or does that argument hold up? Well, that that gets again back to the concept of rules of construction mm -hmm. and courts like to enforce contracts they like for every provision in a contract they feel that it was there for a purpose and so they try to consistently hold um, contracts to be enforceable and for each term to be enforceable it's, it'd be perfectly enforceable to have a contract as you described where the seller's making no representations and warranties but the buyer still has an inspection right, right. and that's that's very consistent would be easy for a court to hold that both would apply Right. And of course, the, the practical thing to do is if, you, if a seller is going to handwrite that in, just say, go ahead and write in, well, the purchaser shall still have their inspection contingency rights herein. However, the property is sold as is. Whereas Correct. Then, of course, it's clear. And of course, you could mark through the inspection contingency if that was the intent and initial that, right? Correct. And then, then make it as is. Yes. Okay. What are some of the more crucial points related to default remedies uh, for a buyer and seller in a contract? Uh, we look at the sort of typical one, specific performance, typically is one that a buyer wants to make sure that they have. Mm -hmm. uh, often that's provided by the laws of the jurisdiction without, if you don't have any specific language, mm -hmm. that's normally the remedy of a buyer. Mm -hmm. uh, real estate, even though there's lots of different real estate properties, courts treat each piece of real estate as unique. Mm -hmm. And so as in large part, contracts for the sale of real estate are considered eligible for specific performance obligations. Um, damages is another provision to consider and it's always heavily negotiated. Mm -hmm. A seller w may want to be able to have damages and if there's a, a deal is lost, either time delay damages or other sorts of damages that may have occurred by, by losing a particular deal, although conceptually a seller's got the ability to sell the property to someone else. And so the damages may be limited by just the difference of the of the sales prices. Um, from a buyer standpoint, if there's a seller default, they if in addition or or in lieu of specific performances, they may want to get some reimbursement for out-of-pocket costs. Mm -hmm. uh, if they spend a lot of money in due diligence, legal fees, may want some sort of a coverage there. Uh, breakup fees is a similar concept to that. And earnest money, that's one of the reasons for earnest money is to mm -hmm. have earnest money up for the uh, to, to show not only the good faith, but also from the seller standpoint, that's going to be money available to reimburse seller for the lost deal. 
we see sometimes where the where the buyer has requested a or the seller will sometimes if there's a negotiation over damage that the seller will agree to some capped amount by which they might be responsible if they walk on a deal yeah that's well said and i totally agree with you i think the remedies for all the what if situations like you brought up earlier that could come up well what if and then well what are the remedies and i think the more clearly it's stated the better for everyone um well here's here's a question that sometimes a seller will ask us and we're short on the break, but if the uh, seller's selling a property and the buyer wants to hold his attorney to hold the earnest money, uh, let's just say the character is unknown of that attorney, uh, should that seller feel like that's that's okay for the purchaser's attorney to hold the earnest money? Uh, it depends on who I'm representing, but <laughs> yeah. in large part, it, it really gets into a question of the uh, credit worthiness and honorability and enforceability of the escrow agent to hold the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes brokers or attorneys are asked to hold money as opposed to a commercial escrow agent just mm-hmm. purely because there's no fee it normally involved. Right. Uh, title companies are another uh, possibility for holding earnest money. We generally, if we're going to have an attorney, we try to get one that's going to have um, it's going to be right in the title in the transaction and we get an insure a closing letter that can help cover the liability issue if there's ever uh, malfeasance in connection with the earnest money. That's great. And we, we like to see it held with the title company. That way you have an independent third party. All right. We'll have more on commercial real estate contracts. We'll be right back. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Of course, we always have fun on the Commercial Real Estate Show. And today, we're having a fun time talking about commercial real estate contracts. We have Tim Ramsey with us. He's a 30-year experience real estate attorney. We're getting some great information about contracts from Tim today. And Tim, here's one. Um, Does a buyer contingency to cancel a contract and receive full earnest money uh, refund hold up or should it call for some amount to be remitted to the, the seller to make the buyer's contingency valid? You know, some contracts we see, you know, you can cancel the contract for any reason, you get full refund of the earnest money. And some we see it says you can, contract the, you can cancel the contract for whatever reasons, and uh, $100 will go to the seller, and the rest comes back to the buyer. Is that, is that needed? Uh, it is a good practice. Some courts have held that a contract that's entered into where Either of the parties, typically the buyer, has the ability to totally terminate the contract at any time, uh, typically during a due diligence period, may be considered uh, unenforceable. And so that's the reason that this language has uh, been crafted that uh, provides that the earnest money minus some nominal amount, $100 is fairly common, will be returned to the buyer if there is a cancellation, but the $100 then gets paid to the seller some sort of a damages provision is to make sure that the contract has valuable consideration that a court will honor and that varies by jurisdiction okay so it's kind of a safety margin safety I'm, margin easy okay. to do we see it in a lot more contracts in multiple jurisdictions yeah. now all right well though it can upset a seller when they're they've had a property under contract for a long time and it falls through the buyer cancels and they get a hundred dollars it does <laughs> like it's what enough do to go have an afternoon cocktail <laughs> or drinks maybe yeah. all right there you go well uh, if a contract is silent 
regarding holidays and weekends, extending the inspection period or a closing date, and the contingency expires or is supposed to close, let's say, on December 25th, does it expire on that holiday or does it extend the next business day? We see sometimes you count the number of days, well, it ends, let's say it's Christmas Day or, or a holiday. Uh, does it really end that day or in, in, in the contract silent or does it go to the next business day? Uh, you would be, it would not be the correct answer to, to roll to the next day or the next week. Okay. Uh, you've got to be very careful about that and it's just not worth the risk to uh, presume that that's going to happen. So if it, if it happens on a Saturday, you need to assume that that Saturday is going to be the critical date. Yeah. Uh, if it happens on a holiday, New Year's Day, Christmas Day, you need to assume that's the deadline date. Get your notices in ahead of time. Yeah. Get a broker that works on Saturday, right? That or, you know, what we do a lot of times we're doing these contracts, it's fairly Friday. simplistic, but we'll sit down and when we say it's going to expire on a date, we'll actually pull out a calendar look. We'll write down the day of the week that it is and make sure it's not a holiday. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And we, we do a follow-up with everybody and say, hey, we've counted all the numbers of days and this is where we see they fall on the yeah. calendar. So they tell us if we counted wrong, but this is what we think. And, Excellent and, practice. Well, let's talk about a tip for a seller related to sales contracts what would be a tip you'd leave us with uh number one would be to get it in writing of course uh, but i get earnest money you want to make sure you've got earnest money from the buyer uh that's uh, sufficient or or uh something to, to to show the good faith of the buyer and to cover you if the buyer does walk out on the deal and make sure it's actually paid and deposited make man. sure it's actually paid and deposited that's correct yeah, yeah we're, we're licensed in 10 states and uh in florida we're required as as brokers to confirm that the earnest money was paid and deposited and i think that's a great practice absolutely well how about a tip for a buyer for a buyer you, you always want to get title insurance yeah. um, make sure that you're working with a uh, with a good quality uh, title insurance company get your commitments in today's day and age it's just the absolute best way to protect yourself yeah. to get that title insurance and if there's a lender's policy in place do you also need an owner's policy absolutely okay. uh, lender's policy protects a lender and you're paying for that lender's policy. Uh, the difference in, in the cost between a lender's policy and then getting a simultaneous issue on an owner's policy is pretty nominal. Yeah. So it absolutely, that's the time to do it. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate having you on. And next week, we'll have a show on commercial leases, I think one of the most important documents in our real estate world. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show.